Hey, it's Paige DeSorbo from Giggly Squad. High quality fashion without the price tag. Say hello to Quince. I'm snagging high end essentials like cozy cashmere sweaters, sleek leather jackets, fine jewelry, and so much more. With Quince being 50 to 80% less than similar brands. And they partner with factories that prioritize safe, ethical, and responsible manufacturing. I love that. Luxury quality within reach. Go to quince.com slash style to get free shipping and 365-day returns on your next order. Quince.com slash style. Did you know, on average, heating your home makes up 82% of your energy bill? Installing a smart thermostat could save you a lot of money and be good for the planet. Honeywell Home have been making the home smarter and more comfortable for over a hundred years and their trusted smart thermostats help you get control wherever you are. And because they work with Google and Alexa, you can simply change the heating with your voice. Installing a smart thermostat doesn't have to be confusing or time-consuming, so why not visit getconnected.honeywellhome.com to find out more. Hello and welcome to the Pocketlin Podcast, sponsored by Honeywell Home by Residio, making the smart home simpler. This week I'm in sunny California covering Apple's Worldwide Developer Conference and joining me to discuss the big news of the keynote is Rhiannon Williams. Hello. From the iNewspaper. And David Feland. Hello. You've heard on the Pocketlin Podcast already uh, and writes to the independent Forbes and pretty much everywhere, anywhere, <laughs> everywhere and anywhere. I get around. Well, there we go. Um, later on in the show, we've got. Uh, I caught up with Jonathan Nicholson, the Assistant Director of Communications at the Civil Aviation Authority, to talk about the future of drones. And Cam and Britta join me to talk about the best smartwatches on the market. Should you go for an Apple Watch, or are there better other alternatives? So, without further ado, let's just jump straight into it. Two hours plus for the keynote lots of lots and lots and lots of announcements way more than we're ever going to have time to cover sure. in this section of the show already <laughs> let's start david what what's the key thing for you if you could pick one thing like a desert island disc moment oh i see okay well and that's quite a tall order because as you say two and a quarter hours it's one of the longest wwdc keynotes i've ever heard and so much in it the whole of TVOS was dealt with, it felt like, in less than two minutes. Apple Watch was very quick. Um, I thought the iPad OS was the most striking thing, and that is, covers quite a lot of things, but suddenly to be able to do a whole bunch of things on your iPad that you couldn't do quite as perfectly before that really makes it into a, a fully-fledged computer substitute. Now, do you think this is, butting in there, do you think this is because they've suddenly thought, well, it's getting way too complicated. We've got these iPhones, we've got iPads, we need to kind of differentiate the fact that the iPad does more than the, a small device that's in your pocket or a big device in your pocket. And do you think that's where it was or do you think it's trying to replace a laptop? Or? I, think, I think it's an alternative. I think suddenly there are lots of different sized screens from Apple, from the biggest 6K display down to the tiny one on your watch and they have different purposes and different functions and suddenly the iPad can work pretty much close to being a real computer. But you're right, things are getting more complicated. We've just seen this with iTunes, that the app has now been turned into three apps on Mac OS because it was such a, a well, oversized app uh, previously. And perhaps it's the same with the iPad, that uh, it could do millions of things really well, but now it's being, in a way, more streamlined to cover 
for being a computer as well as the other stuff it does. Now, Rhiannon, what was your your one thing? My one thing, my one more thing. Your one thing or your <laughs> one more thing to go oh. all Steve Jobs on it. Ah, well, I think one of the main talking points um, that we've seen since the end of the conference has been about sign-in with Apple. So it's basically Apple's answer to the sign-in with Google, sign-in with Facebook that you see across loads of websites, like lots of different shopping retail sites, offer it as a way for you to just quickly enter your details without having to set up an account most of the time. Uh, problem being that Apple and uh, sorry Google and Facebook are pretty good at tracking you across the web and people are getting fed up of handing over all their information. So this is Apple's sort of remedy to this, if you will. Um, allows you to generate a fake kind of email address with every app that has signed in with Apple, which means that you don't have to sort of expose your email addresses to hundreds of spam emails every time you want to use Wi-Fi at an airport. It's and very good. Do you think that people will trust sign in with Apple in a way that they maybe don't trust sign in with Facebook or sign in with Google at the moment? Well, that is a good question because I think Apple's been beating the sort of privacy drum for a long time now and it's sort of served them very well with respects to the fact that Google and, well, Facebook in particular don't have a terribly great track record mm. um, with user privacy at the moment. And May I see think my, my theory, sorry, go on. I'm going to let you carry on. Interrupt me next, you towards the end. And I think, well, Apple's sort of... The way that their values are aligning makes it look as if people will really welcome it. It was something that they do want to use. Like, I can't wait to use something that will divert all of these kind of services away from using my real email address. I always think about the fact that I'm using it to access Frankfurt, Frankfurt Airport's Wi-Fi and it's ending up on a list and it's probably being sold to some corporations to do God knows what with. So, yeah, I, I can't wait to use it. I mean, does the pizza app really need to know my date of birth or my dating history? I mean, that's one of the questions. I think, for me, that move, that, that, that announcement, which was quite a small chunk of two-hour keynote, was very much about the ideology of taking Apple and turning it into a privacy company mm. that you could see the future that if you're looking at they're talking you know they're obviously we know they're going apple card apple cash all the apple pay cash all those kind of things if you're looking at financial services if you're looking at all the health stuff they're doing if you want to turn those into services subscriptions all those kind of things you kind of need to show that regardless of whether you own an iphone or an apple watch or whatever if you've got apple looking after your privacy as a gatekeeper on the web then that kind of that kind of it sort of takes it away from just being a hardware company to being so much more and setting them up for one day in the future, possibly them looking after your health insurance and looking after your banking and your mortgage and all the other stuff. Well, massively, if you're going to trust them enough to, you know, have a credit card with them, hopefully you should trust them with your, your personal data online as well. It sort of bodes well. I think it puts them in a good position. Certainly really does highlight the differences between them and Facebook, for example. Yes, I agree. I think the fact that Apple Pay has been watertight, I think the fact that so much now uh, of the data that we have, the private data, is on device rather than in the cloud, I think that bec is becoming increasingly important to people who worry that a website might be hacked or worry that uh, something could go wrong. It feels a lot safer if you know that the password is in your phone or whatever is in your phone rather than out in the ether. And was there any small kind of, you know, there's always lots, lots of announcements. Was there anything either of you thought, you know, actually this is not a big trend kind of thing that's exciting, but this is this might actually change the way that you use your iPhone or you use your Mac or, or the iPad. I thought uh, there were quite a few of those. I thought, for example, the new um, being able to swipe across your keyboard, which 
Mm. Um, Android has had for a long time, but I imagine Apple will do it very well. Um, Apple's version of Street View for Maps, which is called Look Around, um, looked sen sensational. It, it's late, of course, compared to Google Maps, but again, it's the sort of thing like Flyover when that came to Apple Maps that you think, this is going to look great. For me, that very much felt like it was an AR play. You uh -huh. can imagine in a couple of years' time putting on a pair of glasses and that just sort of shooting you down this, the road and looking around and feeling like you're, in, you're there. Oh, yeah. Enjoy. Uh, and what did you? What was your kind of little one thing that you thought? Oh, this I'm really going to enjoy using this in the fall. Tell you what, I was very excited about changes to the photos app. Ah. So this is something I spend a lot of time looking through. I've got over thirty-two thousand photos in my Apple camera roll. Paparazzi in, in the making. Yeah, basically, I take a lot of pictures of my friends when they don't want me to, and <laughs> it's getting increasingly difficult. You know, since you know you've been using iCloud, so you, you've probably most people have between sort of five to seven years possibly worth of photos and it's getting harder and harder to pick out particular people you're sort of trying to remember like oh what month was that what year was that and it is difficult to find so by introducing these new sort of sections the days months and years it is supposed to make it easier to find exactly what you're looking for the ai is going to get more intelligent to tell you oh that's that's david Phelan in that picture that's Stuart miles good lord aren't we having a good time <laughs> on, that, on that nice day in san jose so yeah i can't wait Love and with that, I think we should uh, we should go and enjoy the sun and, and have that nice day in San Jose. Yeah, why don't we? Why not? Thank you very much, guys. Thank you. Still to come, we check out which smartwatch you should get. Apple is the only one that is tied into specifically Apple. Um, it's confined to Apple's ecosystem, whereas the others are all compatible across Android and iOS, but you won't get as good an experience from a Wear OS paired up to an iPhone as you would with a Wear OS watch paired up to an Android. Drone delivery has been the promise of big corporations like Amazon for some time, and in the UK there are currently tens of, if not hundreds, of commercial trials going on at this very moment and have been for the past three years. The trials, which are about testing a commercial drone beyond what is called line-of-sight control, are incredibly restricted but are there to help prove a use case and viability. Around the world, those viability tests are already being tested. In Australia, Wing, a sister company of Google, started making deliveries to residents in part of Canberra from the start of April, and has also been recently given permission from the FAA in the US to begin deliveries in Virginia in the next few months. And the UK could be about to see trials become fully-fledged services soon too. Ahead of the skies, filling with drones, we caught up with Jonathan Nicholson, the Assistant Director of Communications at the Civil Aviation Authority, to find out more. With the new drone delivery services going live in the US now, we've got Wing, the US, and then their Australian arm is also going live in Canberra in the last couple of weeks. Where do we stand in the UK? So in the UK, we're pretty much in the same place, actually. And, and let's be clear, the American and the Australian uh, projects are very much still controlled trials. It's not the fact they've rolled them out across the whole country, even across the whole city. They're, they're very much controlled trials in controlled environments, which is what we've been doing in the UK with Amazon Prime and others for, for quite some time now. So Amazon Prime have been working in the UK for years at their Cambridge facility, developing their 
their drones, their procedures, etc. So, uh, yeah, in the UK, we're in pretty much the same place. Uh, it, it's, it's working, it's developing. There's still a lot of tech to do. Um, and a little bit of procedures and policy and that kind of thing to do as well. Now, a lot of those trials currently have been about line of sight. When do you think we'll move to an autonomous system? Are we able to move to an autonomous system? Is that on the cards? Yeah, so it's not just deliveries that we're talking about when we talk about autonomous drone operations. That's line of light. The, the immediate nirvana, if you're in the drone industry, is to get that in place because you talk to like local authorities and they want mini drones flying autonomously around replacing the cctv for road management and stuff like that so you know it's not just deliveries where we're talking about here but yeah so at the moment apart from the trials drones are restricted to within line of sight that's all about making sure the drone operator can separate from other things in the air so the only way at the moment if you fly in a drone you know something else in aviation world, if you like, is going to be in your vicinity is by your eyes, by looking out for it, hearing it, and then moving your drone out of the way. Which is quite an analogue way of doing things. Yeah, absolutely. Yeah, and, and, and that's primarily because a lot of the other things that fly in the air don't send out any signal. So people are quite surprised when you say to them there's lots of light aircraft around that don't even have a radio or an electrical system built in. Um, so, you know, those people are flying around in the airspace legally doing their own thing in what we call uncontrolled airspace. They're not doing that in the same airspace as airliners, obviously. Um, but it's about how we integrate drones with those people, plus things like parachutists, plus things like uh, microlites and parachutes and, uh, and, and fast military jets going through a Welsh valley at 400 feet, uh, hundreds of miles an hour. And at the moment, the, the drone technology, so drones sense and avoid, if you like, even the, the small consumer drones have some kind of sense and avoid built in, but it's not good enough at the moment to sense and avoid those other things in the air so until we either get um, uh, a system where everything is talking to everything else and everybody knows where everything else is automatically to avoid it or the drone avoidance built-in technology is so good that it can automatically by itself separate from those other things that's why we're limited to line of sight and how long do you think that's going to take i mean i know there's a consultation that you guys are running at the moment to try and look at things like that is that do we see that this this sort of I think they call it a UTM or yeah. UMT or I can yeah. Yeah, yeah. unified yeah. traffic management is one of the acronyms. And yeah. does that is that something that would be quite easy to adapt to, to drones, commercial drones? Yeah, all yeah. Drones? So so there's, there's there's the two elements really. It's like how fast can the the, the built-in technology in the drone move that will sense and avoid other things, how fast that develops, and then how fast the unified traffic management system develops. Technically, the two could work together, although you could have, if the drone avoidance technology built-in was good enough, you could let it loose potentially without the, without the unified traffic management system. So the unified traffic management system basically is everything in the air sends out a signal, to say what it is, where it's going, and then that gets picked up by everything else in the air and it automatically avoids everything. So our safety director says, basically, we need everything that's flying that doesn't flap its wings to be sending out some kind of signal to say, this is me, this is where I am, this is what I'm doing. I mean, that seems very similar to something that the car system, car industry is trying to do by sort of using 5G to say, look, here is a traffic light that's coming up or here's a person crossing the road. That 
they're saying from a car industry perspective is a couple of years away. How quick do you think it would roll out in the drone world? And therefore, does, if that is quickly, does that mean that we'll start to see our skies filled with more drone deliveries and surveys and all those things? So potentially reasonably quickly and potentially yes. So there's more to it than just is it safe? So from, from our perspective, from the CIA perspective, where is this safe? Does it work? Um, obviously there was a lot of other issues that the government might want to look at, societal acceptance, etc, etc. So um, our consultation at the moment for what we'd snazzily call electronic conspicuity, which is Amazing word. Oh, I don't know who came up with that, but it, that's basically the, the everything talking to everything else and sending out a signal. So that finishes next month, and we could move quite quickly to have specific, really busy, dense pieces of airspace in the UK where you cannot use it unless you are sending out that signal. So we're not necessarily saying the whole of the UK will immediately do it. Um, it's harder to justify in remote bits of Scotland or Wales or East Anglia or whatever where there's less air traffic but certainly southern England I would think um, we're, we're, we're pretty quickly if the consultation you know is gets comes back as, as we think could very quickly move to big areas of that airspace becoming a requirement which then potentially opens up for, for drone uh, much more drone use. Now one of the concerns that I presume lots of people have is that drones are quite noisy um, you know, there's, if you suddenly find yourself on a drone path flying over and, and all the other stuff, if there's more drones, how will people be able to say, look, there's that drone, who owns it? Is there a system that would allow us to do that? So um, we're introducing drone registration. That's an element of it. So there's a legal requirement. The government passed the law uh, last year, comes into effect in November this year, 2019, when you have to register if you're an operator of a drone. So on face value, you could take that, and some countries have, as just here's an Excel spreadsheet of names, addresses, emails, etc. We're going further than that because we want to future-proof it. So that registration scheme will help to feed into the unified traffic management system and be the linkage of being able to identify which drone is which and what it is and where it's going very similar to the air traffic system at the moment we have for, for airliners if you like you can you can look in various online apps and websites that will tell you what things are and where they're going and so that will be you'll see the so effectively you'll be able to point your phone at a drone flying over above and say this is owned by XYZ. They keep on flying over my house. I got to at least I know who to complain to. Yeah. So even if you can't, as an individual, identify, certainly people in authority could, if you like. So um, certainly the the Nirvana, if you like, is a policeman could point an, I, an iPhone or a Samsung Galaxy at a at a drone and and see whose it is and see if it's registered, see if they have permissions to be in the airspace they're in, um, and that also helps to manage the airspace from a safety perspective as well. So if you are managing, say, for example, an airport's air traffic system and you have 30 drones operating in your airspace, mingling in with everything else, 29 of them, you know exactly who they are, what's going on, where they're going, and one that isn't, you can put all of your efforts into your safety alleviations and, and enforcement into that one drone rather than the 30 that... You know, because you know who they are. Okay, and so how do you see all of this, like drones and things like that, fitting into our lives? Do you, 
because there's obviously some people are really excited by it. The potential is massive. Some people are petrified by it mm. because they think it's just going to be another nuisance or another noise and yeah. another thing and whatever. How, how does the CAA see all this working together? Is it is that possible? Yeah, yes, absolutely. So, as I say, we look at it from a safety perspective. So it all sounds a bit Jetsons and a bit kind of, you know next century stuff but um, it's not a big step from where we are now into into that kind of system so our interest is making sure it's safe and it operationally works we will never let anything happen that isn't safe so the UK is one of the best safety records in the world for aviation we're not about to disrupt that or endanger that by allowing something just because it's there's pressure to do it or, or people think it's a good idea we won't let that happen we, we have the ultimate power to stop it um, but on the other flip side we actually absolutely want to help innovation and drive forward stuff a massive input into the economy if we get drone industry right in the UK and for future jobs and for humankind as well so you know I think it was last week was the first uh, active human organ transplant from hospital to hospital by, by drone um, and, and there's lots of uh, uh, trials being looked at for how they can actually help humankind on an amazing level every day we don't want to disrupt that and stop that from happening so we absolutely need to make sure we get the technologies the procedures everything in place so that we can facilitate that and not hold it back and what advice i suppose the last question i have is what advice would you give someone about to go and buy a drone or thinking of buying a drone is there is there a, a nugget of information you can say oh do this do that and do this or is it just you're on your own go off you go uh, no no so i mean yeah there's, there's things we've seen and picked up i mean obviously it, it's, it's everybody's choice everybody might have a different use for what they want for the drone so we see a couple of things really um there's 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 people who want to fly for fun if you like and lots of those people go racing and and then you're in a whole techie world of rotors and motors and and that. i mean they write off drones left right and center and rebuild them and that that gets quite geeky you get the people who want to use them just for photography and video that's a big area as well so then you're looking at how good is the camera how steady is the drone how easy is it to operate because you're probably not interested in being the most skillful drone pilot you want something that's easy to fly as automatic as possible but takes great images and then there are people who are using a drone as a business um, you know particularly people who, who want to do a startup business and it's just them and our advice to those people having seen lots of those people and, and interacted with them is find out exactly what your niche area is don't just go as we've seen with some people I hate my job I like the idea of drones. I'm going to get a drone and start up a business. Those are the people that fail. The people that succeed are the people that have a skill or a, a market that the drone fits into, um, whether it be roof inspections or surveys or whatever. They have that skill, and then they use a drone to enhance it. So that would be what we see as sort of like the, the best advice for those people. From Apple Watches to Garmin's to Michael Kors to Fossil's, we're seeing a lot of smartwatches around, and whether you want to buy one or not, we're going to talk through today about what are the best options for you, depending on what you're doing. Joining me in the studio is Cam Bunton, contributing editor at Pocketlin, and Britta Boyer, features editor. Britta, you've been wearing these smartwatches like the rest of us for a very long time. What should you start to look for, look at to begin with, if you're thinking about getting into the market? Um, I look for design first and foremost because um, you have to be able to wear it 
um, with different clothing and different scenarios. Um, battery life is quite important, though um, most of them don't offer particularly good ones. Um, and how easy and simple it is to use with your phone and what customization options you have. Obviously, that depends on the operating system. Any other different, should you think, if you're, gonna, if you're a runner or if you're just sort of wearing it around the office, is there different things you should think about? Yeah, completely. Um, if you're a runner, then you're most likely to go for a Garmin, which Cam can probably tell you a bit more about. Yeah, um, Garmin is one that I tend to use most of the time um, for running. It's got really advanced fitness features. They do kind of cost a bit of money, but if you're a runner, you do lots of exercise outdoors. It can keep a track on how fit you are, how well you're training. It can even build customized training plans for you. And you also tend to find with the Garmin ones that the battery lasts quite a long time as well. So you could, if you wanted to, you could run for hours and hours and hours and the battery wouldn't die. Whereas something like an Apple Watch or a Wear OS based watch would probably die within a couple of hours. Now that's probably a really good segue into the fact that these all these smartwatches run on different operating systems. They're available for different phones and things like that. So we've got, let's go through them. We've got Apple with obviously Watch OS their main operating system for Apple Watch. We've got Android Wear OS. Which is Wear now Wear OS, OS now. now, yeah. So they changed it a couple of years ago. And then we've got Tizen, Tizen. Tizen. Tizen, which is Samsung's. Yeah, and then Huawei. Huawei has its own. I can't remember what they call it, but they've got their own as well. And then Garmin. And then Garmin has its own platform. Yeah. Has okay. done for a long time. And so is there a difference? As does Fitbit, actually. And as does Fitbit for their <laughs> Versa, Blaze? Versa, and then the Ionic. Ionic. Yeah. So it, do all these watches, do they all work with every phone? Do you have to have it? Is it I know Apple Watch and Apple iPhone work the, well, but do you can you use an Apple Watch on Android? Apple is the only one that is tied into specifically Apple. Um, it's confined to Apple's ecosystem, whereas the others are all compatible across Android and iOS, but you won't get as good an experience from a Wear OS paired up to an iPhone as you would with a Wear OS watch paired up to an Android. You miss out on a few features, and the it's not quite as seamless. The experience isn't quite as seamless. It's still fine, but it's not quite as seamless. Okay, so let's. is there a budget side of thing? Can you get like a cheap, cheerful experience with a smartwatch like you can on the fitness trackers? Or is it, you know, or is it sort of all costing ludicrous amounts of money? Or can you just really go to town? I know like the tags are like thousands, like <laughs> yeah. Louis Vuitton. Louis Vuitton and, and more. Yeah. Things like that. There's a Chinese company called Mobvoi who make the TickWatch brand. Yeah. And you find they, they, they build Wear OS watches and they've got lots of good features and they tend to cost less than the £200 mark. So if you're looking... And budget smartwatches, the TickWatch brand tends to be the one that's doing the best kind of features and hardware at that particular price range. Though they are slightly bulkier, so are, yeah. you need to like a bulky watch. Um, whereas Fossil, I mean, they're not horrendously expensive. They're cheaper than Apple Watch. Um, they they have different styles, lots of different straps. Like Michael Kors has lots of different straps. So does Scargan that you can sort of buy and choose and, and make it your own. Um, and obviously they all come with their own customised faces as well. So if you are a Michael Kors fan, for example, they would have Michael Kors style faces 
that are unique to that particular smartwatch. And I suppose going down that fossil route, and fossil are the parent company, aren't they, that yeah. own lots of these brands, I suppose you get an individual style that isn't necessarily going to be seen on everybody's watch. Yeah. I mean, one of the criticisms, perhaps, from some people of the Apple Watch is that whilst it's a great watch, you can quickly see on the train, in a park, or whatever, that everybody is wearing the same watch, and, and you might want to be different. Yeah. Can you? I know you can customise the Apple Watch with different faces, but also different straps. Can you do that the same with, with other watches as well? Yeah, all of Wear OS, you can customise the faces um, easily as well, just like it's easy with Apple Watch. Um, and straps as well. Obviously, there's lots of... There's the official Apple Watch straps, but there's also unofficial ones too, some of which are actually very good and allow for customization without the cost that comes with the Apple Watch straps. Um, because typically, they're quite expensive in comparison to the third-party ones. Now, we've got almost, according to this timer in front of me, about six minutes in, and we haven't really talked about Apple Watch. It is the market leader. Is it the market leader for a reason? Is it is that a recommended thing to go after? Is what what is the best smartwatch for it? Well, I I personally wear the Apple Watch Series Four. Um, it goes on my wrist every morning. I charge it every night, and I don't take it off. So um, for me, that uh, I enjoy the experience of it. I understand. I do also have Wear OS watches that I might switch out every now and then if I need something that's a little bit more um like a little bit smarter if i'm going to sort of an event i might pick my michael kors one instead because it's it looks a bit more like a watch rather than a smart watch um i think that the experience between apple and the apple watch or apple phones and the apple watch is the is better than what you get with wear os and um and an iphone but if you are an android user then wear os will obviously you can't have an apple watch anyway but wear os watches do typically give a better experience. So effectively, although you can use these on all the different things, if you're an Android user, you would still recommend someone going buying a Wear, Wear OS yeah. watch, something like a Michael Kors. Uh, yeah. uh, oh, there's also the, the Samsung watches as yeah, well. Samsung uses its own operating system, and they you don't really lose any features using it with a non-Samsung Android oh. phone. So you still get a lot of the same features, and they actually make really good watches. Again, for yeah, the spec. battery life. Battery life's fantastic. And they're the yeah. Gear. That's the same. They're called Galaxy Watch now. Galaxy. It used to be called Gear. gear. Now they're called Galaxy, Galaxy Watch. Yeah. Okay, the fine. Galaxy Watch and Galaxy Watch Active is a slightly newer one that they launched with the S10 range. So if you haven't got much money and you're on a budget and you want to get into the smartwatch, you go for Cam Tick Watch. I Tick would Watch. Say, on a budget, yeah. And Brit, if you've got some money but not thousands of pounds and you want a good all-rounder you would go for i'd go for one of the fossil options if you want a good all-rounder but if you're an apple user then i would highly recommend the apple watch and if you've got more money than you can possibly imagine should you go for one of these top end tags or the louis Louis vuitton the tag is a fabulous smartwatch it's beautiful really really well made and just for people that don't know how it is like thousands, isn't no, it? No, no, it's, it's about twelve hundred, but it's modular, so y- you can add to that. <laughs> it's not like it's twelve hundred and that's that. Um, you you add straps and whatever to build your own style. But if you are a tag, if you like tag watches, then the tag modular is fantastic. And with that, we're out of time. <laughs> Well, that's it for this week's show. New episodes of the Pocalimp podcast will arrive every Friday with more news, interviews and buying guides for you to enjoy. And if you've enjoyed the episode, let your friends and colleagues know and please rate us on the podcast platform you're listening on. It really will help let others know you like it too. Until next Friday, pip pip. 
Hi, I'm Daniel, founder of Pretty Litter. Cats and cat owners deserve better than any old-fashioned litter. That's why I teamed up with scientists and veterinarians to create Pretty Litter. Its innovative crystal formula has superior odor control and weighs up to 80% less than clay litter. Pretty Litter even monitors health by changing colors to help detect early signs of potential illness. It's the world's smartest kitty litter. Go to prettylitter.com and use code ACAST for 20% off your first order and a free cat toy. Terms and conditions apply. See site for details.